Do you like all things spooky? How about chilling stories that have you reaching for the covers? In this podcast, we're going under the covers to delve into all things from chilling haunts to your worst nightmares. I'm Morgan. And I'm Emily. And this is why we don't Don't sleep sleep alone. alone. Christmas. It's Merry Christmas. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Christmas 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 I know. First of all, yeah, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't want people to get just a free sample. Oh, true. Of your fantastic voice. Oh, right. Unfortunately, there's no way to segue that. So if you haven't checked us out already, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, email, email, love notes, love notes. Yes. And all that kind of stuff. Morgan, what I think you were trying to say was that... Are you going to mansplain me right now? You shouldn't just get my voice for free all the time. Because if you want to hear more of that voice, you can get it for just a little bit more. Because we are going to be releasing a Patreon in the new year. So just uh, keep an eye out for that. The Segway Queen, y'all. All hail the Segway Queen. I'm okay. All hail the Segway Queen. All hail. Who said that? Who said (laughs) that? that? Oh my gosh. We are super excited to start Patreon, by the way. So, for all the people who don't know what Patreon is, we will be releasing extra content. And also, you will be getting our episodes before it goes live to the public. And all you have to do is just to subscribe. You can do it monthly. You could just do. One month at a time. One month at a time. Do what you want, girl. Do whatever makes your heart happy. And you don't have to do it at all. Uh, That's the best thing about podcasts is that they are completely free to listen. So you can get all your stories that you could ever want and not have to spend all the time researching it or, you know, sitting at home on your laptop, staring Mm -hmm. at a computer until three in the morning. Not that we do that. No, I've never done that. uh, Ever. Ever. Honestly. (laughs) Ever. No. So that's the beauty of podcasts, uh, mm-hmm. but it does help uh, podcasters out, not just us, other podcasts too, uh, subscribing to Patreon because then it lets them pursue their passion and also continue to create content for everyone. Yeah. And speaking of creating content, we have a bomb story today. This one is pretty good. Yeah. As we dug more and more into it, it got more and more interesting. <laughs> and more and more intense. Not intent. As I like to think. <laughs> Every time I hear intense. I was seeing where you were going. I think that. of intense. intense. I have I'm a like, shirt that says that camping is intense. Yeah. And it has tense all that's, over it. It's all I ever think of. So today's serial killer. Where are we going? Is we're going. Well, we will be going to Connecticut. Eventually. But right now we're actually going to be going to uh, Virginia. Uh, so William Devin Howell 
was born on February 11th of 1970 in a small town named uh, Hampton, Virginia. He was the youngest of four brothers, but two were already out of the house by the time he was born since they were a lot older. Uh, with Howell being the last child and having much older parents, they were pretty lenient on what he did and allowed him to pretty much just roam free, which some people, such as his brothers, have said probably wasn't the best idea because he didn't have a whole lot of structure because they were like, ah, oh, we've already had all these kids. We don't mm-hmm. really need to wrangle this kid in. Unsupervised children is always a good idea. Yeah, always. If you ask me. Exactly. And his parents, uh, they actually grew up really poor for their own different reasons and ended up meeting at a very young age and getting married. And the whole family was just very typical. No one really drank or did drugs or anything like that. And uh, both his mom and his dad had jobs and money was a little tight, but they were never at risk. Like they couldn't be frivolous or Mm -hmm. anything, but they never went without meals. They Mm -hmm. never didn't have clothes or anything like that. They just were like the normal working class kind of, you know. They didn't live beyond their means. Yeah, exactly. And the area he spent most of his life growing up was in Virginia Beach. And by the age of five, He had joined a boys club that met once a week and occasionally on Saturdays where they did average boy things. She says with hand quotes. (laughs) I mean, whatever you want to say are average boy things. Uh, Basically what that meant at the time was shooting pool, making model airplanes, bingo, learning magic tricks, uh, you know, like all the cool stuff. And those are definitely the boy stuff. Yeah. Not that not that's none of the girl stuff. Girls none of don't the girl do that. stuff. Girls don't do magic. No. Although I kind of wish I knew hand magic all the time. You know how it's just like those random things where you're like, hey, that I, could have been a thought, like a, like a thobby, a thobby. Yeah, you know <laughs> that could have been a hobby, a thought of a hobby, a thought. <gasps> you're welcome. It is a thobby for me. Magic. Magic is a thobby. Honestly, I kind of had a not a huge obsession. But a slight, I think everyone did in the 2000s with Chris Angel. <gasps> Mind freak. Yes. Remember that? Did that just like awaken a whole entire generation out of slumber? Because that show, I think it was on like MTV or VH1 or something like that. Yeah. That his show was on. And honestly, I tuned in every episode. Every time. I don't know what it was about that show, but that guy had me like on cloud nine. So I think that's the only time in my life that I ever felt like I needed to do magic. <laughs> but I think it would be cool to like go to Vegas and like go to like a magic show. I just don't know if I would do magic. I would practice magic at Hogwarts, but I would not do magic. I think it'd be fun to know card tricks. I could be like the bartender that does card tricks. Honestly, I'd give you all my money. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you show a drunk person magic, they're like, How'd you do that? How'd you do that? Yeah. <clears throat> exactly. But apparently that was a normal boy thing to do at the time. And then by 11 years old, his mother had fallen ill and was diagnosed with breast cancer, which was really, really hard on both him and his mother and obviously his whole family, but really specifically on him and his mother. Uh, his dad was working a lot at the time. 
So he wasn't always at home. And then his mother had to quit her job so that, you know, she wasn't dying. Cause obviously when you're dealing with breast cancer and fighting that it takes a lot of energy. So she wasn't doing much. She was just kind of sitting at home and on multiple occasions had asked him, asked Howell to grab his father's gun, bring it to her and then go play an outside, which he never did because he knew what she wanted to do at Mm -hmm. 11 years old. And so he just never did it because he said he never had the heart to, which I personally have dealt with some things. (laughs) And when a parent is suicidal, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know, but that is hard, especially when you're that young and you're taking care of your parent. Because he's doing his best to kind of go to school and then come home and take care of her. And he's also, like, taking care of himself at at 11 years old. Yeah. Which is, again, something I would never understand or um, ever have an experience towards or anything. But um, I feel for the mom for being sick. That's a really, really hard place to be in, especially as a mom being a provider for the family and then now falling ill and not being able to do that one duty that you're supposed to do is take care of your family. So I can, I can sympathize. I can't see it from the mom's side or see it from Howell's side, but I could only imagine the mental turmoil that would happen if my mother looked at me and asked me to bring me, bring her my father's gun and then told me, go play outside. Yeah. Um, mom, I have some questions. (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) And obviously this is like you're saying, can't even imagine how hard. So he kind of resorts to doing drugs and smoking weed. Mm -hmm. So things that have never really been done in his family, he's starting to pick up to try to cope with everything. Just to kind of, yeah, anything to take him away out of that, that mental state. Exactly. And he gets a girlfriend that he is very fond of. And things kind of stay this way until he gets to high school. And then during high school, he ends up spending a lot of time taking care of his mother still. And then once his dad gets home, his dad takes over. And then once they go to sleep, he would uh, sneak out and go to parties. So at this point in time, he's in high school. He's sneaking out. He's going to parties. He's not really hanging out with the right crowd per se because he's also partaking in underage drinking as well during this time which is like underage drinking is a no-no not just for the fact that it's against the law but like there are a lot of things that are happening in your brain psychologically and developmentally Mm -hmm. especially the frontal lobe i think the frontal lobe and which is like the decision making part of your brain is really really developing and doesn't really develop until like in your late 20s and the memory and yeah the hippocampus because you would never forget a hippo walking across campus. Thank you, Mr. Mellon. So (laughs) this is where we start to see a lot of his judgment calls kind of not up to par to where they kind of should be for his age. But as a teenager, you kind of go with the flow. You don't really want to stick out. You don't want to be, you know, that guy. But this is whenever he has his first encounter with a sex work, making it one of his first sexual experiences. Because if we can just assume the 
sexual maturity of a 16-year-old girlfriend versus the sexual maturity of a 20-something sex worker. There are a lot of differences there, yes. obviously. Because she has a resume. That's a nice... I. Um, <laughs> so this sexual encounter really dictates kind of the path that he's about to start heading down, unfortunately. It is later found out, like, whenever your first sexual experience, we're going to get a little bit more psychological here. Ooh. When your first sexual experience is not a positive one, some might say, it can really, really affect your, your relationships and other sexual experiences later on in life when it comes to physical and emotional satisfaction. Exactly. Um, which is very apparent when we start digging into Devin Howell's later life. So the fact that he had such a young, he might say it's a positive sexual experience, but it's not really at 16. I don't think that that's probably the way he should have gone. But again, hanging out with the wrong crowd in high school, drugs, alcohol, things happen, parties, all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. So those specifically who have felt loved and cherished and respected in their first sexual experience tend to be more successful in their later on relationships when, again, those who don't have a positive sexual relationship don't get that emotional, physical satisfaction that they crave. So then you can kind of just assume what kind of sexual experiences they're having. So it's either they're trying to search for something to fill that hole or the worst case imaginable, rape and violent sexual acts. They just are never really getting satisfied mm -hmm. emotionally or sexually when you start out with a very negative experience mm -hmm. that studies have shown commonly happen. Yeah. That doesn't mean that it always happens, but mm -hmm. that is a very common thing that they see that goes on. Mm -hmm. So this is why people who have been sexually abused earlier in their life tend to have issues, not just from that one encounter, but stemming from that one encounter, not really being gung-ho about sex later on in life. With this experience with the sex worker, it became kind of a thrill experience for Devin Howell or Howell or whoever you want to refer to him as. Um, and at this point, he said that he was hooked. And it was his secret addiction. That's literally what he called it. Where he would then continue this act with hundreds of sex workers. Hundreds of sex workers. According to him. According to him. Because, you know, some people like to... Fib. Ooh, I haven't heard that word in a long time. <laughs> I think it's been like since the fourth grade. Are you a fibber? I was homeschooled. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so once his mother passed away, he quit his boys club, doing all the cool boys club things. Magic. Magic. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of just started to spiral out of control and commit petty crimes, binge drinking, smoking, anything you can think of he was getting in trouble for. And he was even charged with burglary from breaking into a Sears store. That is how you know this is a dated case. Yeah, I'm like, Sears? <laughs> it's been, what would you steal from a Sears? They had like everything. They had everything. They but really like, did. Sears was like, and Macy's. Dillard's. Those were all your department store faves. I got my homecoming and prom dresses At from Sears? Dillard's. Oh, I got my homecoming dress from Dillard's. My prom dress. Did I also get it from Dillard's? That's where I shopped. Meanwhile, other girls were spending like 
three, four hundred bucks at those bougie boutiques. And yeah. I was like, I went to Dillard's and it was seventy dollars. My homecoming dress was like a hundred dollars, and then my prom dress, I think oh, I definitely got my prom dress on sale because it had like a little snag in it. But I think I did get it from Dillard's. I'll have to ask my mommy. <laughs> Cause you know, she was there buying it at the time. But I digress. <laughs> so he ends up getting charged for burglary over at Sears, which Boy, what you stealing from a Sears, okay? Socks. You stealing tools? Socks? Something. Not drugs or alcohol, I'll tell you that. You yep. hooligan. So not too much longer, he found out his girlfriend was pregnant, which didn't really change much for him. And they ended up having another child before he dropped out of school. And his girlfriend did not like the way he was acting and didn't really agree with the path that he was going down. So she took the kids and bounced. She said, not my kids. Which, good for her. Good for her. Because later on, as we find out, she probably is like, I could have dodged a bullet there. Dodged the bullet. Like, can't believe I got with him in the first place. But you know what? We we all make decisions. Mm-hmm. And she was ready to change her life. Exactly. And he was not. So, good for her. So, with this, his girlfriend is now gone. Children are now gone. He becomes a drifter. He doesn't really have anywhere to live. He has burned bridges with family. He's kind of ruined all the relationships any of the positive relationships that could have pulled him out of this dark world. And with most of his time being spent in and out of jail, his family wasn't really welcoming him back with open arms either. He had one family member that would occasionally write to him in jail, Mm -hmm. but otherwise it wasn't really a hard decision for him to start being a drifter and kind of just like traveling everywhere. And then he was able to keep doing drugs and kind of be on the run. And Mm -hmm. he was just always going in and out of stuff. He was soliciting sex workers all the time. It was an easy way for him to kind of do what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And then while in jail one time, he was playing softball and ended up missing the ball. And it hit him like directly above his temple, which then formed a ginormous knot, which eventually it went down, which I've been hit with softballs multiple times because I grew up where my sister was on a traveling uh, tournament team mm-hmm. for softball and my brother was on a baseball tournament team. And so every Sunday it'd be like, which one are you going to, softball mm-hmm. or baseball? And then I always had to go to their practices because I was homeschooled and I didn't have a lot of friends. So I would just mm-hmm. hang out with my mom and go to softball practice all the time or I'd hang out with my dad and go. And I've been hit in the head with softball. That explains... It does not so feel much. good. <laughs> it is not great. I've been hitting the shin with softballs. Ooh. Softballs are not softballs. And they Yeah, hurt. why do they call them softballs whenever they're definitely not soft? Because, girl. And they're also like 15 times the size of a fucking <laughs> baseball. <laughs> you know, they are still softer than baseballs, but still. Yeah. Still. That's a whole ball coming for your face. And he like claims that he was like blinded by the light and yeah. didn't see it. He's like, I couldn't see it, and it just hit my hit my head. My glorious face. My face. And then he ends up going to the nurse and the jail because even after the swelling goes down, he still has, like, a little pocket that he feels like that has fluid in it. And so he's like, this, this is not good. He tries to drain the fluid himself and doesn't work, goes to the nurse. The nurse is like, this is really serious. I cannot help you. Stitches it back up. <laughs> she says, I cannot help you. <laughs> it stitches that up and then sends, sends him, him to a nurse, like a doctor. Yeah, like a specialist. Mm-hmm. And the specialist is like, this is a really big deal because what you've got going on 
You're right. It is fluid. Mm-hmm. And it's a blood clot from a pseudoaneurysm, which happening once, it can kind of fix itself and then everything's fine, like nothing. But it also can cause complications later on, especially with it being a head-related trauma. Injury, yeah. I was to say, like anything with the, the face or the head just sounds dangerous. You can do some serious damage when you're messing around with your head. Especially when you got extra fluid that close to your brain. Like, exactly. That's scary. A blood clot. None, nonetheless, like not even extra fluid, just like a blood clot. And then after this is when he starts to fantasize a lot about raping women. Mm. And then once out of jail and off of parole, he skips down again and moves to Connecticut in 2001 where he finds a new girlfriend that is completely fine with his inconsistency and being gone for long periods of time. So said no girlfriend ever. Exactly. Maybe I'm just really clingy, but like absolutely not. She's like, you can be a drifter. You don't have to be here all the time. That's fine. If you want to go in and out, you could be gone for two months at a time. I don't care. They had a system and it worked for them. So awesome. Could not be me. Could not be me. Dylan is gone for two days and I'm instantly like, honey, when are you getting back? Kyle works a side job for one (laughs) night and is gone for an extra three hours. And I'm like, (laughs) crying myself to sleep. This is in 2001 when he moves there. And again, he's kind of being a drifter. And then in early 2002, at the age of 31, he gets a new job because before as a drifter, he kind of just was doing lawn work here and there. He had like his own tools. So he would just kind of because you don't really need paperwork or like to be registered. You can kind of knock on people's doors and be like, hey, want to pay me 50 bucks and I'll do your lawn, you know? Exactly. And it probably supported his habit as well. Exactly. And so that's kind of what he was doing. But he ended up getting this job with uh, Benko Roofing in Connecticut and then was able to buy a super deep dark blue, almost like black looking Ford Ecoline. So he bought it for $400 from his girlfriend's mom. So it's got a lot of miles on it. It's falling apart. It's been driven a time or two. (laughs) And towards the like front right wheel, Mm -hmm. that one patch of metal is bright blue. And then the rest of it is this like black color. Yeah. So it looks kind of sketchy. Very easy to identify though. Exactly. And he... Really liked it because he could put all of his tools in the back of it and Mm -hmm. have room. And so he could continue doing his like side lawn business, but still do the roofing jobs too. Which he had his name and his phone number on the side of this van. Yeah. Name and phone number. So that people could call him to do lawn work. Devin's Lawn Service. I mean, it is the early 2000s, but for a guy that's doing some really sketchy stuff, I wouldn't be putting my name... And phone number on there. Yeah. Not not me. He ended up having to start living out of his van that he just bought because he lost his apartment. And he kind of was able to stay with his girlfriend occasionally. But he mainly wanted to live out of his, out of his van versus living with her. I think it probably had something to deal with, like, not wanting to rely on someone. And mm-hmm. he had been a drifter for so long at this point. He probably wanted his own like space sometimes exactly and with not having a solid place to live 
things started to get even worse with his rape fantasies and his drug use and alcohol abuse and all that kind of stuff. And he later states that it was the van's fault for why he started to do bad things and not really his fault. And that if he would have never had to live in the van, he would have never. My thing is, is that he like willingly chose to live in the van. Right. Like if he really didn't want to live in the van, he would have worked harder to live in that apartment. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, as much as I want to say, you know, oh yeah, maybe it was his environment. He chose that environment, unfortunately. And that's probably a hard reality for him Mm -hmm. to accept. Because a lot of times we don't want to accept the reality that we put ourselves in the situations that we don't like. It's easier to point a finger. Exactly. I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) And anyways, he really starts to not take care of himself even more so than before. And he ends up having this tattoo of his name, Devin, on his left bicep. With fancy little like swishes underneath too. Yeah. Which, okay, I mean... To each their own. To each (laughs) their own. I mean, I wouldn't get my middle name tattooed on my arm, but he he went by Devin. Like, he didn't like being called William. But, like, why you gotta get a tattooed on your arm? That's a lot of commitment, yeah? It's just a little interesting. I think it's funny, kind of. I mean, I would never get my name tattooed on me anywhere. That's just not my thing but anyways his hair starts to grow pretty unruly and he ends up getting pretty stocky and he's only 5'9 so he's not that tall either yeah and he's pretty he's pretty full average sized in height but very stocky like could take you in an arm wrestling match and he continued his normal life hopping from place to place and Again, living in and out of his van. And January 1st of 2003, 29-year-old Melanie Ruth Camelini, I apologize if I'm not saying the names correct, who was a mother of two, went missing, which was not too out of character for her since she was suffering from substance abuse and would regularly disappear from time to time. Then on June 18th, 44-year-old Janice Roberts was last seen getting into Howell's van, but went missing after the encounter. And no one seemed to really care because she was a sex worker, which, again, common for sex workers to kind of, like, disappear from time to time as well. Because they've got to support habits. They've got to move around where the money's good. Less than a month later, 55-year-old Diane Cusick disappeared mid-2003 but again suffered from substance abuse problems and had been out of contact with her family, so it went unreported. After another woman, age 26, Marilyn Gonzalez, went missing, who was a mother of two, she left her home that morning, and that's it. That's all they have. It was July 31st when 33-year-old Melissa, let me say this correctly. You got this. Arismendi, I believe was reported missing and last seen getting into Howell's van, which marks one of the first real times an eyewitness has, like, reported someone who had gone missing during this 2003 period. Which is a really big deal. Yeah. This is the only one that was almost immediately 
reported missing to police. And another thing to kind of keep in mind is that Connecticut at this time didn't have a crazy disappearance rate. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of crazy crimes. Like, this guy is known as the most prolific serial killer in Connecticut history. The second runner-up has only killed three people. Which, only killed three people. That's a lot. Yeah. Don't kill anyone. But but for a serial killer, usually the number, unfortunately, is a lot higher. So it's not common for people to necessarily be just leaving like this. But because of the lifestyles that, the, that these people are living, it is kind of common. On October 10th, a 23-year-old Joy Martinez went missing. But again, it went unreported. So we're starting to see a trend here of unreported women going missing during 2003. And then later, same month, October, 40-year-old Mary Jane Menard was a substance abuse counselor who was recovering from her own addictions and went missing again with no leads. And some people suspect that she had kind of started to resort to sex work every now and then Mm -hmm. to get some extra cash here and there. Mm -hmm. And so they think that maybe she had been in the act of this at the moment, and that's when she went missing, but don't really know. It's just weird to think that, like, people can just disappear without anyone really noticing. And that's a very, very scary, scary thing. So it wasn't until April of 2004 that Howell was finally suspected of Nilsa Arzmendi's disappearance, which then led police to seize Howell's van for the investigation, and they were able to conduct a full search of his van. They said, open up the doors, we're coming in. That was really good. Thank you. And during the search, they found that seat cushions were missing from his van, so he had physically removed seat cushions. Seems a little suspicious. It's a good look. Um, And there were blood samples that were found under the carpet in his van. DNA samples from two of Arismendi's family members made for a 99% match or made for a 99% certainty that one of the blood samples had to have been Nilsa's. So this is whenever things start like really start looking bad for Howell. Like now the police are questioning him why Did he even have blood samples? Like, why was there even blood from Nilsa in his van? All this other kind of stuff. They also found six bizarre, and I say that with hand quotes, bizarre sex tapes in the van. But the way that they were filmed were very strategic because you couldn't really either make out the faces or they were pretty, like, blurry or cut out or whatever. So whoever filmed them knew what they were doing. And was it a sex tape or a trophy? One can only (laughs) hope not. I never even thought about that part. Bang, bang. I just didn't know if they were like sex tapes because obviously they didn't really release what was in those sex tapes. So God only knows what was on the tapes. But like, were they sex tapes with other sex workers that he had been you know seeing during this time or were these his victims you can't really tell because you can't really see their faces unfortunately so in july of 2003 
Nilsa's sister reported to police that she had not been seen or heard from in seven days. While Nilsa was a heroin user and a sex worker, as told by her sister, and was living in a motel with her boyfriend, it wasn't common for Nilsa to, one, be out of the loop for that long, and two, she had children. So it was even more out of character for Nilsa to not be present for her children and to abandon them like that. So it's just like red flag number one and and... I think that's where Howell really, really messed up. And I think he might have gotten away with it if it wasn't for the sister pay paying close attention. Because all the other victims didn't really have people, you know... Checking in on them. Checking the in on them. And, like, yes, the other ones had kids and all that kind of stuff, but they weren't very... They weren't super present in those children's lives. And it's like, even though Nilsa you know, was a sex worker, did heroin, was a drug abuser, whatever. She was still, being a mom was very important to her. So the fact that she wasn't there for her children kind of like was the red flag and like the, hey, <laughs> something might be wrong here for her sister. But she, Nilsa lived with her boyfriend at the time who was a convicted drug, what is it? What is the word I'm thinking of? Drug lord? That's not the word I want to use. He wasn't like a drug lord, but he was like he high up. He he distributed drugs. So he was not really a good guy either. But again, not an excuse for her being missing for seven days. So it was in this motel room that the boyfriend and Nilsa let Howell stay for the night. The next morning at 2.30 a.m., the boyfriend reports seeing Nilsa get into Howell's van. And that was the last he had seen or heard from her before her body was found in 2015. And of course, the boyfriend became a prime suspect at this point in her disappearance, but he ended up doing a polygraph test and getting cleared of all of his charges. The last known sighting of Nilsa, which is that one eyewitness report, was seeing her in the van of a supermarket parking lot in Devin's van, which they know for a fact, because remember, he had his name and phone number plastered on the side, which is how the police ended up tracking him down and searching his vehicle because that was the last known sighting of where where she could have been and it later came out that howell and the couple had known each other for a while because they would often get together and do drugs but again he was currently living with that girlfriend off and on and kind of living in the van so it was just a whole mess it was a whole mess but it later came out that they knew each other prior so it wasn't just like howell was some random guy that came over and spent the night and then ended up kidnapping or doing God knows what to Nilsa. At the time, Nilsa's body had not been found yet because her body, again, wasn't found until 2015. But Howell was still charged with first degree manslaughter and was later charged with witness tampering when it was found out that he was threatening another inmate, which he was trying to get the inmate because in his plea in the case, Howell reported up and down that it wasn't him. Right. How could it be me? You know, so he was threatening other inmates to vouch for him, which obviously they would never do. But the fact that he was trying to tamper with his witnesses ended up just like adding more salt to his wound. And it was super common. This is totally a side note. It's super common for inmates to kind of like share stories in jail because like obviously they're already convicted. So like, you know. They're trying to, I don't know, get more hierarchy. Yeah, like more kudos points, I guess. Like, oh, wow, like you're 
you're real bad. Like, you're real cool. Don't want to mess with that guy. And this is where he kind of inherits the name Sick Ripper. And the media ends up kind of adopting that name as well. And he even told another inmate about how one time he kept one of his victims in the back of his van after killing her for up to two weeks. Two weeks. And it gets worse. You want to hear it? I'll tell you. No. I'm going to tell you anyway. So it was too cold. That was his excuse. Oh, I'm sure. To dump the body. It was too cold to bury her. I'm sure. Because cold is now the problem, right? And during this two-week period, he kept her in the back of his van, which, by the way, he lived out of, and would only refer to her as his baby. Yep. Creepy. Unsettling. I'm good. I'm okay. I'm not okay. I don't... And he would often sleep next to her dead body. What? To keep warm? She cold. Apparently, it's too cold. That just makes me really uncomfortable. Like, so you can tell that he's a little unhinged. Just a little. Unhinged. Unhinged. (laughs) He then removed her fingertips, dismantled her lower jaw, and disposed of her body parts in Virginia. Which, I guess he was trying to get rid of DNA evidence of who she was, but you have to remove all of the teeth. Because she still had all of her top teeth. So I don't know what he was trying to do here. I don't know if he was maybe, like, experimenting or maybe just trying out something else it just it was very out of the ordinary so it's like was it even true did he even do this or was he just like trying to show off to his inmates no one knows so shortly after howell's trial began in january of 2007 he entered an alford plea to first degree manslaughter which in layman's terms means that he didn't exactly admit to murdering nilsa but since the evidence that they compiled in the prosecution was so good He's like, I didn't do it, but like, you got a lot of evidence, which makes no effing sense, but whatever, you know, a plea is a plea. Am I right? And at his sentencing, he continued to deny the killing of Nilsa. He was like, nope, didn't do it. Wasn't me. That blood that you found in my van was from an altercation, a physical altercation that happened between Nilsa and her boyfriend. I don't, not me. And I'm over here sitting, reading this, going, but it was under your carpet. How did it get under the carpet? How did we find the blood under the carpet? How did it get there? Where did it come from? Tell me now. Where did it go? It went under the carpet. Where did it come from? Nilsa. We have all the answers, bro. Just just plead guilty so we can just get on with this, right? We know you did it. We know you did it. So he also tried to, like, retract this Alfred plea, saying that, like, oh, you know, my team pushed me to, you know, do it because they said it was the only way that I could even try to live an innocent life. You know, I'm an innocent person. I never killed her, blah, blah, blah. So with that being said, they were like, "Mm, shut it down. You're going to prison for 15 years. Shut it down. Shut it down. And he served his 15 years at the Cheshire Correctional Institution. In Connecticut. Good. Weeks later, (laughs) so he gets sentenced for 15 years. A couple weeks later, a hunter is just behind the West Farm shopping mall and ended up finding human remains that were later identified as Cusick, Martinez, and Maynard. All of these women that went missing in 2003 are now all found in the same spot. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And then on April 28th of 2015, years later, like years later after they do a search, more remains were discovered and later identified as Arismendi, Gonzalez, Camelini, and Wisnant. How did they not find these? I think they were too wrapped up in the fact that they just found three bodily remains. If all of these bodies were found in the same spot, why not excavate the whole entire area? Yeah, like why was it years and years and years mm-hmm. later that they finally go back to look and find four more bodies? You know what I mean? I just wonder. Well, they didn't really connect him to, and he was already convicted for Nils's murder, that I don't think that they expected to find the rest of the missing women. True. It's like all these women didn't really have much in common either. Like whenever you start really digging into their profiles and all that kind of stuff, except for the fact that they didn't really have people close in their life. They were kind of either estranged with family or didn't have a lot of people checking in on them. They were sex workers. So it's like it was kind of normal for them to disappear. It was kind of part of their, you know, cycle, I guess. So it's like, I don't know if the investigators and the police suspected him of those murders yet until they found the three girls right and then maybe that's whenever they started trying to look for nilsa and once they stumbled upon nilsa's remains that's whenever they also found all of the other girls as well yeah ours mendy gonzalez camelini and roberts yeah so it's like you had this one case that started as kind of not simple because it's not simple to say the least but it just blew the case out of proportion as right. like this is a much bigger operation than than we suspected so this is whenever practicing attorney Ann k howard contacted howell in january of 2015 or not january july of 2015 while he was serving his 15 year present uh prison sentence and was about to be charged with the remaining of the six murders because this is whenever they started kind of like connecting the dots and they were like um so you're gonna confess to these or not nah? So they're now trying to like build a case. They're about to sentence him for the next six murders. And following shortly after, on November 17th of 2017, the remains of all the final girls were found and Howell was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences after pleading guilty to the murders of these girls. Locked so, and loaded. loaded. So once they found them, because I think it took them a little bit because now they were starting to put two and two together now they're really digging through that area to be like, well, if we found Erismendi's body here, let's start looking a little deeper. Maybe this is a bigger operation and maybe we do need to do a little bit more digging, quite literally. So I think once that happened, it really helped them build a case to get funding to do all of the other extra investigating that they probably wanted to do the first time. But it's a lot whenever you find bodily remains. Yeah, like you've got to do a whole bunch of DNA testing. You've got to speak to the families at that point. And I'm sure contacting these families wasn't easy either, seeing as they were kind of, again, estranged from their families and all that kind of stuff. But it's just like, I can only imagine getting that news. I haven't heard from, you know, so-and-so from like in, in 15 years. And now I'm finding out that she was murdered. And like, I would feel so guilty. I haven't talked to her in that long. And turns out she's been behind a mall buried and I, all I had to do was just reach out. That would be the thoughts going through my head if I got the call from the police. But 
Six consecutive life sentences. I said, you're, you're staying here. Yeah. That's it. You're done. Um, and he cried and like put on this like, of course, huge show about like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And he ends up later on describing to the families that were there in court to watch his sentencing that his actions were monstrous, cowardly, and selfish. And he apologized over and over and over again to them saying that he was a terrible person, yada, yada, yada. He would later go on to tell the court that he deserved the death penalty. But in 2015, Connecticut, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled out the death penalty. They banned it. And now, of course, in 2017, he's like, give me the death penalty. And they're like, what a manipulation move. I know. So it's like, oh, apologize. Get all this like, you know, remorse. I have remorse. But then ask for the death penalty, bro. Knowing that. Rot in your cell. Think about what you did. I want you to live with this for the rest of your life. He's only saying, oh, give me the death penalty because so many people look down on the death mm-hmm. penalty, which I can understand yeah. to a certain extent, just so that he can get sympathy from people like, oh, maybe he has changed. No. No. It's all a manipulation game. That's all it is. Just trying to get some sympathy out of you so that they don't feel like they're such a terrible person at the end of the day. It's like, I don't believe in the death penalty. But in that instance, I wouldn't have even, even if the death penalty wasn't, you know, kicked out by the Supreme Court at this time, I still wouldn't have given it to him because I believe in the whole, like, you're going to rot. You're going to rot in your cell. And I want you, maybe you won't feel bad about it for 10, 15 years, but eventually you're going to be like, damn. I messed up. Maybe I did mess up just a little bit. And maybe then he would feel some sort of remorse or something. And this is whenever Anne K. Howard reaches out to him again after he got this sentencing and all this kind of stuff. and The dust kind of settles. And she's like, we should talk. We should talk. I think I want to write a book about you. And this is whenever he like really starts you know confessing to these crimes and in great detail through letter and phone calls like goes through all of his victims and it's just he goes through details that he didn't even tell his lawyer Mm -hmm. like he actually confesses to her everything that he possibly could because he considered her to be his friend And at one point, he even claims that she was his best friend because she was so in contact with him and no one else was. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me a lot of in uh, Mindhunter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where it's that relationship where these serial killers will think that, oh, we're we're friends. I I can be safe. I can talk to you Mm -hmm. because they're having someone come in and look at them not as a criminal but as a person Mm -hmm. and they want to get to know more of them for whatever reasons for research for books or you know whatever and i think they just are like this person is my friend i can talk to them and And i feel like that's really common too you see it a lot too that kind of like best friend dynamic in court cases where they have to like you know they plea the insanity plea right and they now have to go through psychiatric evaluation well, they start to really trust their their advisor, the psychiatric advisor that they're under because that's what they're meant to do. I want you to feel relaxed and tell me everything and talk to me because 
I want us to really get down to the nitty gritty parts of it. And I feel like that's whenever, if they really are psychotic, that best friend mentality kind of comes into play. So I feel like whenever they don't show that best friend mentality, it's kind of a clue as like, they ain't crazy. They're just trying to act crazy so they can get out of it or get a lesser sentence or whatever. But like that weird best friend dynamic is just like, it's so bizarre to me. It's so interesting because whenever she was finishing writing her book, Mm -hmm. she obviously gave him a copy Mm -hmm. because she's like, this is about you. It's your stories that you've told me. I've just compiled them into this book. Maybe you should read it. And maybe you (laughs) should read about it. it. And he got really upset. He was like super angry. He was super upset with her because she spoke a lot about how terrible he was Mm -hmm. and about being in the room with him was really weird because she like rips him apart. Yeah. And he thought that they were friends and he didn't know why she would write those things about him. So it's, it just blows my mind. And like the things that he told her are awful. Like we now know because of all the interviews that he wouldn't just kidnap these women and kill them and dump them. Like Mm -hmm. he would kidnap them or act like he's just paying them for sex work Mm -hmm. and then throw them into the back of what he called his murder mobile. Not the Batmobile. The murder mobile. That was his van. And then he would duct tape their mouths and proceed to rape them for hours or days until he would ultimately hit them in the head with a hammer to try to kill them or he would strangle them to death if they wouldn't die during the first hit on their head. And all of his victims had been raped except for one who he killed in a complete rage, which was uh, Janice. Uh, Roberts, I believe. Yes, Janice Roberts. I wanted to make sure I got the last name correctly. And so once he picked her up, because she was a sex worker, he picked her up and did the whole thing, throwing her into Mm -hmm. the van, the duct taping, all that kind of thing. And then as soon as he realized that she was transgender, he just got into a complete rage, didn't want anything to do with it, Mm -hmm. like with any type of sex or anything like that, and just killed her immediately and then dumped her body in what he called the garden, which we know is where they found all those bodies. Yeah, behind the mall. Behind the mall, which he called the garden because... Which makes it sound like such a peaceful and sanctuary. Yeah. But But we see that he does that because he calls that the garden and then he calls Nilsa baby. Mm -hmm. He puts these like stupid names that are awful. That sound so innocent and like. Terrible. Yeah. Unsettling. (laughs) And the reason why he chose this specific area is because he often slept in his van in the parking lot of that mall and kind of got to know the environment and. He knew the routine. And was comfortable with dumping bodies there Mm -hmm. because he knew. And he knew no one really went back into the woods behind it or anything. Mm -hmm. So he would even leave his shovel out there. How? So that if someone saw him walking in from the woods. They wouldn't like suspect him of anything. It's just this homeless guy who probably went to go take like a leak in the woods or something. Yep. So. It's like he was smart in some ways. But really not smart in others with covering up his tracks. 
But that's the is thing. Is it arrogance or stupidity? But he killed for his own enjoyment. And he claims multiple times that he never would have stopped killing if it wasn't for the fact that the cops caught him. And we see, if you look at the time, the timestamps, look at the timestamps. Mm-hmm. He starts to get his kills closer and closer. Yeah. He starts with like four months and then it goes to like two months and then it's like another two months and then it's like weeks. Within the same, yeah, within the same month. Yeah. So he's getting more confident or his urges are becoming much stronger. Which goes back to not being able to be satisfied. Or controlling your urges. Exactly. Hmm. Some things that where we have maybe... we seen where, uh, where have we seen those before? I think maybe you talked about some of it earlier. I don't Nah. But he he would like pride himself in the fact that he didn't fit the bill for a serial killer. That he wasn't like the other ser- serial killers. and But you are. And that he came from an amazing family and that he never killed animals when he was a kid. He never did anything bad or anything like that. And that it was really like his mom dying that changed everything for him. But he tried to – he always made sure – that everyone knew that his family was good and that he was just a bad apple kind of of the family. He was, you know, the black sheep. Yeah. And he even is quoted saying that he knows, like he says, I mean, I committed monstrous and heinous crimes, but my true character isn't a monstrous and heinous person. Because he likes to claim a lot that it was the van and that it was like mm-hmm. this monster inside of him that was committing these crimes, mm-hmm. not actually him and all that kind of stuff, which if we go back to when he tries to say that it was too cold outside yeah, and that's why he couldn't dump the body, let's look at the timestamp. We know what body that was. Mm-hmm. She was reported missing in July. Well, we don't know for, I don't know if we even know for sure if it was Nalissa or not. Because he says that he dumped her in Virginia, which that mall is in Connecticut, right? Yeah, I thought that was Nilsa's body. I don't think so. Oh. I don't know. So, like, that's what kind of, like, made me believe that, like, I don't know if it was, like, a lie or not, or maybe that was one of his first killings, or maybe... It's just weird, but he did give nicknames to all of his girls. That one was just a lot different than the other ones. Yeah. He also could have fibbed a little bit with what the story was to the inmate. Yeah, misconstrued some of the facts so that, like... They wouldn't be able to trace it back to mm -hmm. that grave. My thing is, is, like, wouldn't you want to bury someone in the cold? No, because it if it's colder... I mean, yes, you want to bury someone always... But if it's colder out, the body's not going to, like, rot. Decompose as it should, I guess. Or as he would plan it out to be. But then why even kill in the cold if you knew it was going to be cold out? Wouldn't you have, like, planned that out better? Which and is, like, why, again, I think... It had nothing to do with it being cold. No. Because he was... He was trying to justify his weird kink. Yeah. He was killing in January... He wasn't killing in all the months except for 
November and December because he got mm-hmm. caught. So he would have been killing in all what all of the weathers. And that was never an excuse. In all of the weathers. All of the weathers. I love the way you said that. All of the weathers. He would have been killing in all of the weathers. I'm very It's smart. scientific fact. <laughs> it's meteorological fact. He Me- would have been killing Meteorological. To- meteorological. Yep. Fact. The weathers. <laughs> There's four of the weathers. <laughs> There's four weathers on this planet. There's sprung. Not in scammer, Florida. We have two. And... Summer and not so much summer. Skinter and Finter. Those are the weathers. Welcome to my channel. (laughs) Welcome to my TED Talk. (laughs) But like this case, he always tries, again, like you were saying, like he always is like talking about how like, oh yeah, I'm not like other serial killers. But bro, you fit the bill for a serial killer. Maybe you didn't have the same upbringing as most of these serial killers. But that traumatic event of, I don't know, your mom asking you to go fetch a gun. And your parent dying when you're young. It's still a traumatic It does a lot. Event. does a lot to you. And, like, who knows how his relationship was with his dad and all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, he had absent parents, which was very common. Like, maybe dad didn't leave or mom didn't, like, leave, but mom passed away. And dad didn't really give two shits about you. Like, the fact that he allowed him to drop out of high school says it all. Were you really different from all these other serial killers? Or are you just trying to, like, make things up in your head to make you feel better so you could be famous? Yeah. I don't I don't get the serial killer mentality. And I guess that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. Why did I sound so bummed? Like, oh, I just don't get it. What is it like to be a serial killer? <laughs> FBI, please don't put me on your on your flag list. I promise I'm not a serial killer. Or am I? Dun dun! I'm kidding. I don't... I'm not strong enough. For sure. I couldn't do it. I literally could not do it. Like, to think about... First of all, that's so much work. That's so much work. You gotta lug a body through the woods? I think not. I can't even take my ass on a run. My chest starts to hurt. (laughs) Oh my god. Can you imagine? Please don't. Please don't imagine, guys. Please don't do that. So if um, some guy in a van, in a rapey van, asks you to, you know, hop in, like, let me take you for a ride. Say no. Run. Because he could be, he could be the next serial killer. Run. I don't know. Run in the opposite direction as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. Get the license plate first. Mm-hmm. Then run in the opposite Keep direction. Keep in touch with all of your family members so they can report you missing. Or friends. Or friends. Or your not blood-related family. Or your co-workers. Just... Someone, just someone, and don't don't sleep sleep alone. alone.